lifted, the bottleneck is open. So there was a buildup, but it's not anywhere near how it was being reported. A dramatic change in immigration policy and what it means logistically and politically. For Sunday, May 14th, Mother's Day, this is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. Coming up, the latest on the presidential election in Turkey, where the country's leader, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, is facing a serious challenge to his 20-year hold on power. And the launch of a new season of the show, More Perfect, the podcast that explores the human dramas behind big Supreme Court cases. Plus, our colleague Rachel Martin on the spiritual power of psychedelics in patients with terminal diagnoses. What would an experience of this sort do to someone who's facing the most significant existential threat that they can. First, the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. A year ago today, a racist mass shooting at a grocery store in Buffalo left 10 people dead and three others injured. A memorial was held today where New York Governor Kathy Hochul praised Buffalo's resilience after the attack. This building, this neighborhood, This community, a testament to the simple fact that hate did not win on that day. The white supremacists did not win on that day. President Biden, in an op-ed in USA Today, once again called on Congress for more action against gun violence in the U.S. Biden wants lawmakers to ban assault weapons and high-capacity magazines, among other measures. Officials from Topps Supermarket, where the shooting happened, also announced plans for a permanent memorial. The gunman pleaded guilty and is serving life in prison. While Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky spent the weekend in Western Europe meeting with leaders, he was awarded a prestigious European prize today. And Piers Eleanor Beardsley reports that prize, conceived in 1949, is awarded to individuals or institutions for work done in the service of the European unification. The jury of the Charlemagne Prize said while Ukraine waits to be admitted to the EU, Zelensky and the Ukrainian people are actually the ones fighting to defend Europe and European values. Charlemagne was king of the Franks and Lombards and was also crowned emperor of the Romans. He united a 9th century polyglot realm and is sometimes known as the father of Europe. After visiting the Pope in Rome Saturday, Zelensky met with German Chancellor Olaf Scholz in Berlin. From there, he headed to Paris to meet with President Macron. Zelensky said Kyiv and its Western supporters could make a Russian defeat in the war in Ukraine irreversible as early as this year. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. In Turkey, votes are still being counted, but preliminary election results show a tight race between the incumbent over the past 20 years and a challenger running on a promise to restore democracy. Duri Buskeren has more from Istanbul. Despite a campaign marked by violent attacks on opposition rallies and the arrests of activists in Kurdish-majority areas, many voters left the polls on Sunday with a feeling of hope. I'm imagining a better future, and I hope things will change after this, says Beresh Durantash, a volleyball coach in central Istanbul. A sluggish economy and slow response to devastating earthquakes in February left longtime Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan vulnerable in the race. His opponent, a former accountant and anti-corruption campaigner, Kemal Kilic Darolu, promised to restore the rule of law and free jailed political opponents. Around 90 percent of Turkey's 64 million voters went to the polls. For NPR News, I'm Dari Buskaren in Istanbul. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. The Worcester County District Attorney is investigating an early morning shooting involving police in the town of Oxford. The DA's office says a police officer shot a man on Main Street around 6 a.m. There's no word on the man's condition. The officer says the suspect was coming at him with a sword. The Oxford police officer was not hurt and is now on leave pending the investigation. Governor Healy's efforts to expand the state's shelter system is hitting a roadblock. A state college in western Massachusetts will not provide space after facing community complaints. Jill Kaufman reports. Massachusetts' shelter system is at capacity, said a Healy spokesperson, and they expect all communities to help. The state has been proposing to public colleges and other entities they lease unused buildings and turn them into emergency housing. In March, the Healy administration offered to lease unused dorms at the Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts in North Adams for about $2.5 million a year. But some citizens opposed the plan, as did the mayor. And this week, MCLA President James Burge, who had supported the idea, said the college will not be leasing the dorms. The state is leasing an unused building from Salem State College. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Jill Kaufman. In Vermont, vending machines will be used to distribute the medication that can reverse opioid overdoses. University of Vermont's Kelly Peck says free naloxone, also known as Narcan, will be available in small towns. Going to your provider and saying, hey, I need Narcan, like, might not be a comfortable conversation for everyone. So making it easily accessible, publicly accessible, I think is a really important effort. The University of Vermont's Center on Rural Addiction will use federal funding to provide machines to five health centers. Sports, Game 7 at the TD Garden, Eastern Conference semifinals, halftime, Celtics leading Philadelphia 55-52. Tonight at Fenway, the Red Sox host St. Louis, looking to salvage one game of the three-game series. In the forecast, clear skies, 40s overnight, sunny skies, 70s tomorrow. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Asma Khalid. At 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time last Thursday, immigration policy changed dramatically. The controversial immigration program known as Title 42 came to an end. Former President Donald Trump had invoked this policy in the midst of the pandemic. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has decided to exercise its authority under the Title 42 of the U.S. Code to give Customs and Border Protection the tools it needs to prevent the transmission of the virus. The virus being COVID-19. When Trump announced this plan, it was exploding across the U.S. And while the public health emergency was the official justification, Trump implied this was something he'd wanted to do anyways. We've had this problem for decades, for decades, you know the story, but now it's uh, with the national emergencies and all of the other things that we've declared, we can actually do something about it. We're taking a very strong Hold of that. And Title 42 did fundamentally change the way border agents dealt with people crossing into the U.S. Rather than detaining migrants or releasing them into the United States, they could process and expel them in minutes. And they did just that, 
more than 2.8 million times since the beginning of the pandemic. And in the days and weeks leading up to last Thursday night, concern about the impact at the border swirled. The influx of migrants is only expected to grow by the time Title 42 ends on Thursday. Officials and you can see behind me, it is quite a sight. There are so many people here already, and they are waiting to be processed. Some Border officials estimate up to 65,000 migrants may be in northern Mexico waiting to cross. But when the policy expired Thursday night, the situation at the border was much less dramatic than was anticipated. My colleague Joel Rose has been reporting on both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border. He covers immigration for NPR. And so I asked him what this scene has been like after Title 42 expired. It's calm and and it's been orderly here in El Paso and, and kind of really up and down the border. And I know that does not make for great copy or exciting cable news chirons, mm-hmm. right? But like, that's what we are seeing. But we do know that, you know, there are likely still tens of thousands of migrants in northern Mexico who ha- there's this sort of pent up demand, right? I mean, they haven't had a chance to seek asylum over the past few years, and they may still very well be waiting to come and cross the border to try to do that. So it's really too soon to say, right, if we're, mm-hmm. if we're going to see that big influx that people have been waiting for. We definitely haven't seen it yet, though. You know, there's a message that the Biden administration has been sending, I will say rather clearly, which is do not come. Uh, Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas directed, I would say, a rather clear message to migrants that was released across social media. Do not believe the lies of smugglers. People who do not use available legal pathways to enter the U.S. now face tougher consequences. Is that a message that is landing with migrants? You know, with some of the migrants we've talked to, it really is. They do seem to know that Title 42 is over, and they do seem to know that that means that that exposes them to new consequences if they cross the border illegally. Now, I, I'm not saying that all the migrants in Mexico know that, but I, I've been struck that a lot of the people we've talked to in Juarez have gotten that message. And also some of the folks we've met on the street in El Paso who've already crossed over, like a lot of them told us that they wanted to get in ahead of Title 42 because they felt that whatever was coming next would be worse for them. Mm. I mean, what you're describing, Joel, is is really that this story is not just about this moment, right? And even as you're describing a situation, I was really struck by that it's relatively calm there at the U.S.-Mexico border. I am still interested in understanding what this might mean in the weeks, the months to come. Is the Biden administration prepared to deal with an increase of people at the border? Um, Because this is not just a story about this week. They say they are. I mean, they've rolled out a bunch of new policies, which are kind of a combination of carrots and sticks. On the carrot side, you have incentives to use these new legal pathways, what they're calling humanitarian parole, family reunification, basically legal ways for people to come from their home countries without using a smuggler, without crossing the border illegally. And on the stick side, they've put in place a sharp new limit on asylum at the border that says if you've crossed the border illegally after going through Mexico or another country, you are presumed to be ineligible for asylum. And that's a big change from the way things worked before. So they've got these policies in place that that are how they're going to try to manage the border. But already both ends of that, the carrot and the stick, are being litigated. They're being challenged in court. You know, a group of states led by Texas is challenging the parole program. Mm -hmm. Um, The ACLU and other immigrant advocates immediately challenged the new asylum rule the moment it went into effect. And there's a pretty strong chance that, that they will find receptive judges, you know, to block some of these programs, if not both of them. 
And then the question is, you know, how does it play out in court? What does the administration do if those tools are taken away? Because those are the main new things that the administration wants to do to manage what are historically high levels of migration. And those are kind of the best tools that they have been able to come up with. You know, they say, you know, only Congress can really create a, a durable solution here. But I mean, I think you and I both know that's not coming anytime soon. Mm -hmm. So can these tools work? I don't know. But the administration wants to try them and it may not even get the chance. That's NPR's Joel Rose speaking to us from El Paso, Texas. We also wanted to get a sense of what this policy change means for the president from a political perspective. So I asked my colleague Franco Ordonez to join us. Like me, he covers the White House for NPR. So, Franco, how has the Biden administration been preparing for this moment? Yeah, I mean, this has been an issue since the beginning of the administration. Obviously, the president came into office promising to bring big changes, uh, bring back humanity to this very fraught political issue, uh, unroll or unravel many of the policies that that former President Donald Trump did. But there was also a lot of politics involved because he knew, uh, the president knew, the White House knew that they had to follow through with some of the promises that the White House made, that the president made on the campaign about immigration, about bringing some humanity, at the same time, continuing to manage the border. How they did that or the process they did, day one, they started unraveling many of those policies. He stopped Trump's signature border wall. Mm -hmm. He uh, stopped the travel ban for majority Muslim countries. Obviously, he did a lot of work on family separation and reuniting families. But for a long time, you know, many of the progressives, those on the left, were concerned that he wasn't doing enough. And part of that was for political reasons. He had to show that he could also maintain and manage control of the border. You will remember, as well as I did, his first press conference in March of 2021, where some of the strongest, hardest hitting uh, questions were about the problems on the border. And he defended uh, himself very vigorously. He defended the border very vigorously saying that the vast majority of migrants coming are being sent back. Sent back. Are being sent back. Thousands, tens of thousands of people who are, who are over 18 years of age and single people, one at a time coming, have been sent back, sent home. And that was a strong message, a strong political message to those in the country who are concerned about the border, but also a pushback on the right and all that rhetoric that he is, quote, you know, an open borders president. You know, Franco, this administration seems to be on a drumbeat and has been for a long time trying to tell migrants not to come. There was this famous moment in the summer of 2021 when Vice President Harris was in Guatemala when she said, you know, very plainly, do not, do not come. come. Do not come. The United States will continue to enforce our laws and secure our border. There are legal methods by which migration can and should occur. It's startling how similar this sounds to what we just heard the Secretary of Homeland Security say the other day. And I have often wondered if this message is really being directed at migrants or if it's directed at a domestic political audience 
to present that they are in control of the situation. I mean, I think that's very fair, and I think it's very real and very honest. I mean, this messaging, Kamala Harris then, of the president uh, in his first press conference, or even, you know, when Secretary Mayorkas, Alejandro Mayorkas of DHS, is talking about the border is not open. Those are also directed at the domestic audience. Let's not forget, Asma, that there is a presidential election coming mm-hmm. up not too far from now. He just announced that he was running for Biden, a re-election. Yeah, yeah. So, and this is one of the biggest issues that Republicans want to use to undercut President Biden's competency. This is an issue that they feel they have ammunition on, and that's because polls show, you know, as a vulnerability for President Biden. Franco, so how does this White House navigate the immigration debate in the months to come, especially facing criticism, you know, from folks on the left, but also folks on the right? I mean, it's very, very difficult. I mean, you were talking with Joel about all the potential litigation that's coming at President Biden, coming from the left and the right. I mean, it's very clear that he is getting attacks from both sides, from the advocacy world that, as you said, they say that these policies look too much like the former president's policies and from the right who are accusing uh, the president of, you know, having too much of a porous border. It's a very delicate, fine line balance. And this is where he pulls out all his his moderate Joe Biden ways to try to stay kind of balanced in the middle. I mean, I think the White House would tell you that he is trying to reach those middle America voters, you know, kind of that sweet spot in the middle. And politically, that is the area that he's kind of needs to, to focus on. And that's because his vulnerabilities politically are more on the right than the left. That's NPR's Franco Ordonez speaking to us from Washington. You're listening to NPR News. And good evening, and thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Russell's Garden Center with unique Mother's Day gift ideas, flowers, jewelry, clothing, bird feeders, and plants. Russell's Route 20 Wayland. Lend us your ears anywhere with the new WBUR app. Tap and listen when and how you want. Download or update in your app store now. WBUR supporters include Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive function coaching, yoga, and counseling are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Summer semester starts June 5th. Semesteroff.com. Clear skies overnight. Lows will drop to the 40s. Sunny tomorrow. Temperatures getting into the 70s and then into the 80s with sunshine Tuesday. 67 now in Boston. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. President Biden is again calling on Congress to do more to reduce gun violence. This as Buffalo marks the first anniversary of the racially motivated mass shooting at a grocery store that killed 10 black people. In an op-ed in USA Today, Biden noted the many deadly shootings the country had this year, telling Congress it needs to act.
Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is on a European tour to secure more military aid. He visited the German Chancellor in Berlin and then met with the French President in Paris, who says Ukraine has his country's full support. And at the weekend box office, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 stayed on the top spot for the second weekend in a row, adding $60 million to its take. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Asma Khalid. Every week at this time, we share a little bit about a podcast that we are really into from the NPR network. This week, we're featuring More Perfect from WNYC Studios. It's the show's fourth season, and it tells the human dramas behind big Supreme Court cases. Julia Longoria is the host of More Perfect, and she joins me now. It's great to have you with us. So nice to be here. So the story of the Supreme Court is something I understand you have been invested in personally for a very long time, since childhood. (laughs) Uh, You were a self-described Supreme Court nerd in high school, competing in the national We the People competition. I confess I did not know that existed. Uh, So what is it about the Supreme Court that has kept you engaged enough that you wanted to host an entire podcast about it? Yeah, I grew up in Miami, Florida. Both my parents are Cuban refugees. And it was a pretty conservative environment. And just learning about the court, to me, it seemed like it really could be a place above politics, um, Mm -hmm. which today um, politics have seeped into the court and maybe have for as long as it's existed. But I find it to be a place where ordinary people clash with some of the biggest arguments and ideas in our country. And that just makes for really incredible radio Mm -hmm. documentaries about people's lives intersecting with the biggest stakes possible. So I want to ask you about one of the people at the center of these cases. Um, We're going to spend a few minutes talking about episode one of your new season. It just dropped. Um, But my understanding is uh, the man that this first episode centers around, Al Smith, is actually a story that you have been wanting to tell for a very long time. Tell us about that. I first read about the case in high school. Um, It involves a man named Al Smith, as you say. He was a Native American man from Southern Oregon who ingested peyote uh, in a Native American church ceremony and then was fired for doing so because peyote was illegal at the time in Oregon. Um, And so he took his case all the way to the Supreme Court. And the court actually said, no, you can't break a drug law for um, religious purposes. And to me, growing up in a Catholic environment where, you know, we have wine at mass, um, it seemed a little odd. Um, I was so eager to talk to Al Smith. So I started making phone calls. I learned that Al Smith actually died in 2014. But in a stroke of incredible luck, this uh, law professor at the University of Oregon had spent hours sitting with Al Smith in the 90s 
and he had recorded his interviews. The feast of many discs. You just hear this man come to life. These huge buildings that had lived. Was he who you had pictured? He wasn't really. I mean, he's a complicated man in that he grew up at a time when the U.S. government was making a concerted effort to separate Native children from their culture. Um, and so he was put in boarding schools. I started running away, I guess, fourth grade maybe. Mm-hmm. I walked on the railroad tracks. As a teenager, he became an alcoholic. High school was like kind of the beginning then of alcohol. His transformation um, happened in Alcoholics Anonymous. So that was the beginning of the change of my life. Yeah. I had to learn to live all over again, how to behave differently, how to treat people, how to treat myself. And that's when he rediscovered, as he puts it, his grandmother's God. Mm-hmm. I can remember my grandma used to pray in Indian every, uh-huh. every night, see? Uh-huh. You didn't know what she was saying. You know? Yeah, I, I guess I, I hadn't pictured such a nuanced and complicated person, and but of course he is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, Julia, in your episode, there's a pretty dramatic retelling of what happens in court. And we're going to play a portion of it. It's about six minutes. And then I want to talk to you about it on the other side. The first voice you all are going to hear is this law professor at the University of Oregon who had these rich archival recordings with Al Smith. What's it like to sit there, you know, and watch the Supreme Court debate with your lawyer or with the other lawyer about your case? Well, you're a bump on the log. Al sat through the whole thing. You got a certain little section they set you in. And you sat there. And they sat up there and uh, performed. We'll hear argument next, number 88-1213, Employment Division, Oregon versus Alfred Smith. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. They had Oregon's lawyer, the attorney general, go first. Government's interest in controlling peyote and similar hallucinogens is real. It is compelling. and it's His job is to lay out the compelling state interest that Oregon had for denying Al Smith his benefits. In order to further the health and safety interests of its citizens. He said peyote is dangerous to the people of Oregon. The feds had labeled it a Schedule One substance at the time for a reason. Peyote is unquestionably a dangerous and powerful hallucinogen. Plus, law enforcement can't play favorites with one religion over another. Justice Antonin Scalia chimed in on this. There is a problem in just allowing all religions to use peyote, but not allowing uh, all religions to use marijuana. What about marijuana religions? LSD religions? The attorney general said, look, you have to be able to create a general rule with no exceptions that everyone has to follow. This is when Justice John Paul Stevens pipes up. Your, your flat rule uh, position would permit a state to outlaw totally the use of alcohol, including wine in, in religious ceremonies. What about wine at Catholic Mass? That's a different question. Why is that different? Uh, the issue of sacramental wine is different because, at least at the present, it is not a Schedule One substance. So you mean it's just a, a better-known religion? No, it has nothing to do the with... The difference, Oregon's lawyer says, uh, is that you don't drink wine at Mass to get drunk, but you do ingest peyote for its hallucinogenic effect. Well, Mr. Dorsey, we'll hear from you. Then Al Smith's lawyer, Craig Dorsey, got up to speak. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. When you're arguing 
It feels like you're only about 10 or 15 feet from the Diaz. He remembers this day pretty vividly. You actually physically can't see the entire court because they're kind of wrapped around you. Since Scalia was new, he was on the end on my left side, and Kennedy was on the end on the right side, and they were asking most of the questions. And, you know, I'm head is kicking around to try and look directly because you want to engage with them. And he told the court, for starters, this comparison to wine at church, you're thinking about it all wrong. I think if Indian people were in charge of the United States right now, and you look at the devastating impact that alcohol has had on Indian people and Indian tribes through the history of the United States, you might find that alcohol was a Schedule I substance and peyote was not listed at all. And we're getting here to the heart of an ethnocentric view, I think, of what constitutes religion in the United States. In other words, Christianity is getting a pass while Native Americans are being persecuted. Plus, he says, a small amount of peyote isn't proven to be harmful. It's actually been helpful for recovering alcoholics in the Native American church. So Oregon has not proven their supposedly compelling state interest of protecting people's safety. The state has failed to meet its burden under the First Amendment to justify what we believe would be the total destruction of this religion. But the justices push him on other points. Here's Sandra Day O'Connor. However, How about I... marijuana use by uh, a church that uses that as part of its religious um, Well, see, I think we can get into a lot of examples, and I don't want to go down that road too far because we don't have the facts here. But the fact is... She said something like, I bet you don't want to go down that road. And there was laughter, you know, in the courtroom, and that's where we knew we had kind of lost her. Why can't the state consider it itself? And then Scalia pushes back saying, shouldn't governments be able to make general rules like this that everyone has to follow regardless of their beliefs, with no exceptions? So long, so as, long as it does it does, generally and doesn't pick on a particular religion. Well, the problem is, is this law and the neutral, quote-unquote, prescription does affect a particular re- religion only. And Scalia at one point said, well, you would agree. I I suppose you could say a law against human sacrifice would, uh, you know, would affect only the Aztecs. You know, I was kind of at a loss for words about how to respond. I don't don't know that that, that you have to make exceptions if it's a generally applicable law. To me, it was like showtime for them. Who the hell is Al Smith and who the hell is he, you know? They could care less of who I am. It's like... How in the hell did they get so high and mighty? And we, the common people, you know, are just... I don't know you or you or me or anybody else. The case is submitted. We're back with Julia Longoria. She's host of More Perfect from WNYC Studios. And Julia, you know, the court in that case ruled 6-3 to against Al Smith, basically saying that Al Smith can't break the nation's drug laws because of his religious belief. And so fast forward, and we are now seeing a lot more religious freedom cases coming up in the courts. And it seems that in many cases, the court now is ruling in favor of people's religious freedom. 
So what has changed? No, over the years, the politics around religious freedom have changed. Um, And the people suing in the Supreme Court aren't coming from minority religions like the Native American church. They're largely coming from majority religions. Christians saying that they want to sidestep anti-discrimination laws to deny services to same-sex couples. You know, the court is having conversations about Masterpiece Cake Shop, about these, you know, Christian cases right now. In the background, they're talking about Al Smith's case. But it seems like the court is not ready to totally overturn the Smith decision. That's right. Um, Justice Samuel Alito, in a concurrence in a recent case, he said it's time to overturn Al Smith's case. But other justices uh, seem more reticent. Amy Coney Barrett said, well, if we get rid of Smith, what's the new standard we're going to have as a court when we look at these cases? Um, So it doesn't seem that the court is going to overturn Al Smith's case anytime soon. Yet they are ruling in favor of religious people. Um, So it seems like they're kind of having their cake and eating it, too. (laughs) So before we go, I want to ask you about the second episode In your podcast season, it focuses on Justice Clarence Thomas. And, you know, he has been the focus of a lot of news headlines recently for his lack of ethics disclosures. You, though, focus on a different aspect of his life, his how his views on racial justice have evolved. And you described him at one point as being one of the most powerful black men in America, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, I mean, You know, he's the justice who's been on the court the longest right now. In five more years, he could be the longest serving Supreme Court justice ever. (laughs) And with a new uh, conservative majority on the court, his decision, you know, commands the court in a lot of cases. And so, you know, with all the revelations coming out um, with his relationship with Republican megadonor Harlan Crow, it's tempting to think that Clarence Thomas you know, is selling his opinions to the highest bidder. But when we dug into his past, we actually found that Clarence Thomas thinks he's doing what's best for Black poor people in America. I mean, here's a clip of him talking about how he feels misunderstood by people uh, in his own race. It pains me deeply, or more deeply than any of you can imagine, to be perceived by so many members of my race as doing them harm. All the sacrifice, all the long hours of preparation were to help, not to hurt. I mean, you found out a lot about how his own views on race and racial politics have evolved. Yeah. In college, we learned Clarence Thomas actually was a bit of a black nationalist. He listened to Malcolm X on records and could recite his speeches from memory. Um, But reading his opinions through that lens was really fascinating. I think because Clarence Thomas holds so much power in our country, um, it's important to try to understand what he's doing from all angles. Julia Longoria hosts the fourth season of More Perfect from WNYC Studios. And remember, next Sunday, we're going to share another podcast that we love from the NPR Network. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. 
The country of Turkey held national elections today. The country's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, has dominated Turkish politics for the last two decades. But now he is fighting to hold on to power. Turkey has been a key NATO ally for the United States, and so there is a lot of global interest in this race. NPR's Peter Kenyon is in Istanbul and joins us now. Peter, it's great to have you with us. Hello. So, Peter, what can you tell us uh, about the latest vote tallies? Where are things? Well, it was a big vote, a large turnout, over 85 uh, percent, and the race is living up to its billing as uh, being too close to call. Uh, the biggest surprise for some uh, was the strength of President Erdogan showing so far. Uh, although the ruling party and the opposition disagree on the exact numbers and the official election authority that's supposed to decide these things hasn't weighed in yet, uh, to give you an idea, the state news agency is giving Erdogan 49% of the vote, five mm-hmm. points more than his rival Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, while the opposition mayor of Istanbul says, no, no, Kılıçdaroğlu is the one with 49% and Erdogan has 45 Now, there's a Supreme Election Council that's supposed to settle these things, uh, but that hasn't happened yet. Mm. One thing to note is that barring an unexpected change that puts one candidate over 50% of the vote, uh, this vote won't be, desi- won't be decisive. The race will have to go to a runoff in two weeks' time. Uh, Now, if Erdogan's total, for instance, does rise back above 50 percent, he would then be declared the winner immediately uh, without any runoff. So, Peter, I want to ask you about two things here. If you can give us a sense of who Erdogan's main rival is and also what are some of the issues that have dominated this race? Well, Kamal Kalistrolo is a veteran uh, civil servant, head of uh, a couple of bureaucratic agencies. Uh, He's also known as a very clean politician, which is a thing in Turkey where corruption has has for a long time been a problem. Um, As far as the biggest issues... Uh, they really haven't played out in Erdogan's favor. Uh, he was widely criticized for his government's slow response to the devastating earthquake mm-hmm. uh, that left 50,000 dead, millions homeless earlier this year. Uh, in addition, Turkish consumers have been really struggling uh, with soaring inflation. Prices of essential goods have skyrocketed. Uh, budgets are tightly squeezed. And then there's a growing concern for Turkey's democracy. Uh, Erdogan concentrates more and more power in his own office, weakening other institutions like the judiciary especially since an attempted coup in 2016. Critics say Erdogan went on a massive purge, uh, taking out military personnel, academics, and others. Uh, But he still maintains a loyal base of devout Muslims and working-class people in Turkey. They haven't forgotten uh, that he paid a lot of attention to their concerns, uh, which had gone largely ignored for decades Mm -hmm. by previous governments. So despite all his problems, he retains the support of a lot of people. And as you mentioned, he has been the dominant politician for some 20 years. His critics had been predicting that he would be fading in popularity, but it appears that hasn't happened yet. So, Peter, what happens next at this point? Well, uh, they're still counting these votes. Uh, Once that's finished and we have an official total, uh, then assuming that no one has gotten back over 50%, in which case they would just win flat out, and there's no legal challenges to hold things up. Uh, The election campaign would essentially resume, uh, and that would be heading toward another nationwide vote. That's the runoff in two weeks' time on May 28th. All right. NPR's Peter Kenyon in Istanbul. Thank you very much. Thank you. This is NPR News. 
And thanks for sharing part of your Sunday, Mother's Day, with us here at WBUR. And happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. Good afternoon. I'm John Carpilia. Stay with us. Coming up at 6, it's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. And Volante Farms in Needham, featuring farm-to-table meals to go on Wednesdays and Sundays. View menus and order online at volantefarms.com. Tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR, the debt ceiling conversation. Well, it can be a bit abstract until you start thinking about how it might impact your retirement account. We'll connect the dots tomorrow morning on WBUR. Clear skies, 40s overnight. Sunshine, upper 70s tomorrow, 77 degrees now in Boston. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Thousands of migrants continue to cross into the U.S. from Mexico, but Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas says border crossings have dropped off since the pandemic-era policy known as Title 42 expired. Hundreds of thousands of people in Bangladesh and Myanmar have been forced to leave their homes because of Cyclone Moko, which is packing winds as strong as 130 miles an hour. Forecasters say heavy rain could trigger flash floods and landslides. And the world's biggest and oldest military aviation museum in Ohio is marking its 100th anniversary this week. The National Museum of the United States Air Force that started as a technology training collection for engineers after World War I turns 100 on Tuesday. I'm Janine Herbst. NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Scripps News, committed to objective reporting that illuminates and informs the whole story. Available live with a TV antenna or streaming device. More at scrippsnews.com forward slash TV. And from Plymouth Gin Distillery, Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered. I'm Asma Khalid. What would an experience of this sort do to someone who's facing the most significant existential threat that they can. As it turns out, the effects were nothing short of astonishing. That's Dr. Roland Griffiths. He's one of the country's most notable psychopharmacologists. That means he has spent much of his career thinking about how certain drugs affect our consciousness. And he talked to our colleague Rachel Martin recently for her new series, Enlighten Me. Rachel joins us now in this studio. Good to have you here. Hey, Asma. So we heard Dr. Griffith say that he was blown away by what happened to some of his patients. What's he describing? Yeah, so I don't want to give away the ending here, but let me give you some context. Dr. Griffiths was one of a small group of scientists who started testing how a psychedelic drug called psilocybin affected the mental health of people who were suffering from terminal diseases, primarily cancer. Mm -hmm. But it was a really long time getting to that point. What do you mean? So earlier in his career, Griffiths was studying the risks of mood-altering drugs and sleeping medications. But then he himself got really into meditation, and he started asking some very big questions about the spiritual power of our minds. And it was a major turning point in his life professionally and personally. 
So let's hear what he has to say. It felt almost like a midlife crisis of sorts uh, yeah. because I became disinterested or, or much less interested in what I was known for, what I, what I was being paid to do. I'm at Johns Hopkins among first-class scientists, most of whom are very reductionistic, hold a materialistic worldview. And mm. I remember going to some meetings and people say, well, what's up? And I said, oh, you know, I've gotten really interested in in meditation. And I'd start to say something and their eyes would glaze over and like that. It couldn't be less interesting <laughs> uh, to them. Was so, that disheartening uh, it, to you? Uh, because no, you ultimately I mean, needed kind of their peer support. Well, that, I wasn't going to get it there. <laughs> uh -huh. you know, and so there was a period of time that I seriously considered resigning from Hopkins, or at minimum, I was going to go off to an ashram in India for a year or however long it took to understand meditation and go deeper and explore that. That was the minimum. At the very least, you were going to like go live in an ashram for a year. That's a big deal. Yeah, but it was as much being pulled in that direction as also finding myself disconcertingly indifferent mm. to what I was doing. So Griffiths never went and lived in the ashram because something happened that gave him renewed purpose. Around this time, a group of psychedelic enthusiasts and experts were trying to revitalize the clinical study of these kinds of drugs, work that had all but disappeared after a huge backlash to psychedelics in the 60s and 70s. So what this group needed was a scientist, someone who was highly regarded and curious about consciousness, someone like Roland Griffiths. So you started working a lot with um, psilocybin. Can you explain in layman's terms what that is? Yeah. So uh, psilocybin is one of these classic psychedelic drugs. Uh, this comes from psilocybin containing mushrooms, and psilocybin's been used hundreds to thousands of years with indigenous cultures for these ceremonial healings or sacramental or religious uh, kinds of uh, experiences, yeah. you know, trips. Do you say that? Do you use the expression trips? trips? No. Oh, uh -uh. you don't. Okay. No, no, because it just has all of that association, the baggage from the 1960s. That was not your scene. That was absolutely not my scene. Yeah. What do you call it? Experience? Yeah, I would call it uh, an experience. Yeah, a psychedelic experience. Yeah. Okay. You were running these trials explicitly on cancer patients at some point to see how the psilocybin, the psychedelics would affect them. That in fact was our first therapeutic trial that we ran with uh, psychedelics. And I can tell you where I sat with that and that was feeling very cautious about what would an experience of this sort do to someone who's facing the most significant existential threat that they can, and that is their own, their own demise. And as it turns out, the effects were nothing short of astonishing. In this cohort of people who met criteria for clinically significant depression or anxiety, uh, 
with a single dose of psilocybin under these kinds of supported conditions, anxiety and depression dropped immediately and markedly hmm. and enduringly. That was the most important feature. So in that study, we followed people up at six months and they remained with very low symptom profiles. Can you articulate what they said to you about how did that alleviate their anxiety? I do recall one man who had the psilocybin experience and came to, I'm now hesitant to give this example, uh, but, uh, but I will. He came to believe in the reality of God but what was so interesting is that this changed his whole frame of reference. He he was in considerable pain, and that pain receded in importance. Mm. Uh, but I think what was most moving about that is there was something about the change in the very nature of his being that was mm. absolutely inspiring and awe-taking to his caretakers. And it wasn't that he was filled with spiritual language, mm -hmm. uh, you know, God's going to save me. No, it was an acceptance for his condition and a reassurance to the people he loved most that everything was okay. Everything was as it should be. Mm -hmm. And they felt uplifted by that. If I may ask, why were you reticent to share that example? It's... <laughs> Uh, it's the God language. Uh, mm -hmm. Well, we're all sort of limited by our language, right? Maybe some people use the word God because we don't know what other words to ascribe to these certain kind of ideas or experiences. Or... Well, I think I think that's precisely it. I mean, for for me personally, we live in the midst of this astonishing mystery, and we don't have a coherent scientific explanation of what's going on. The thing that we understand best about our experience of sentience is that we are aware that we're aware and that we do have an interiority and it's only uniquely us as the individual who's experiencing that that can affirm that. You have found yourself on the other side of this whole thing <laughs> as someone who is contemplating these very existential questions with new urgency. When yeah. when were you diagnosed with cancer? 14 months ago. I went in for a screening colonoscopy, thinking myself to be completely healthy, uh, taking very good care of myself and coming out with, as it turns out, a stage four cancer colon diagnosis. And so that's, <laughs> that's led me into this deep contemplation about uh, what's going on here. And um, I think I've been served very well by my long-term practice of meditation, being able to call out and see where my mind is going and mm -hmm. see rabbit holes of dark 
emotions or thoughts uh, that would surely bring on nothing but misery were I to inhabit them, be them fear, anxiety, you know, denial, resentment. I mean, there's a, a depression, there any number of ways one could go that would be nothing but miserable. For me, the diagnosis, as unlikely as it seems, has been a call to celebration. And my wife and I have been in that mode for the last 14 months in spite of you know, multiple surgeries and uh, and all of the uh, potentially unpleasant occurrences that emerge from treatment of through the medical system and the chemotherapy and and stuff like that. It's a hard reality. It's like a duality to try to, um, we're, we get wrapped up in the, in, in like war language with cancer, but on the one hand, fight the cancer, right? right. And do the surgeries and the treatments, but then accepting the cancer at the yeah. same time. Yeah. Yeah. Are, do those two things feel in conflict for you? Not at all. Yeah. So the very first time I went into chemotherapy, I got a text message from my daughter, whom I love very much. And she writes, dad kick cancer's ass <laughs> and that's and that's the fight mode right and right and that or depression anxiety or fear i mean i've chosen that's not where i want to live i don't want to be in battle with my with my body yeah. and i don't want to be in fear or anxiety or denial or resentment i mean wh why Do you plan to take psilocybin at any point? No, I initially, I actually didn't want to touch a psychedelic um, because I was concerned it would somehow alter the state. I Sabotage <laughs> this this yeah. very healthy, appreciative yeah. mental yeah, right. clarity you had. Yeah, right. Huh. And so there actually came a point where I thought, I wonder if I'm defending against something here, I wonder if my reason for refusing to take a psychedelic is that I'm masking something over, that that uh, there's a skeleton in my closet here and I'm saying I'm joyful and I have all this equipoise and everything is beautiful, you know. So I decided, okay, so I'll take a dose of psychedelic and do that very inquiry. Yeah. Uh, it was LSD. And, How'd it uh, go? <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, Did it? Yeah. I address the cancer as other. And and in general, I don't think it's it's wise to reify anything in mind as anything other than an object of mind. But in this case, I address the cancer itself and said, okay, what's going on here? And the answer, there, there was no answer, actually. <laughs> Uh, cancer didn't didn't cancer didn't me. talk back cancer yeah. didn't, <laughs> didn't say it didn't have a thing and so then <laughs> then i got into dialogue and said well you know i've considered you a blessing i i actually really respect everything that's occurred to me since mm -hmm. this diagnosis you know and i'm i truly am grateful for the for the diagnosis I said, but, but do you have to kill me? <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> and <laughs> was there an answer to that one? Yeah. Yeah. 
the answer was, um, yeah, you're going to die. But uh, this is as it should be. There's a, there's a deeper, there's a deeper meaning. There's a deeper purpose to this. And you should continue to do exactly what you're doing. And I felt implied by that, that I should speak out more broadly about what I was going through. Because I've been been reluctant to do so. I've done some. Then I said, <laughs> now I'm talking to cancer. I said, but okay, so I have something to say here. How about giving me some more time? <laughs> I like that you went for the follow-up. I like I went, that you pressed. I, I went to the follow-up. <laughs> I mean, how many times do you get the opportunity? Yeah. <laughs> but I got radio silence. <laughs> it didn't answer. No. Uh, but that was it. And, you know, who knows? Uh, was I dialoguing with the cancer? No. That doesn't fit within my worldview. Some people would say say I was. But it was deeply affirming to what I was doing. And actually after that- It validated that, how you felt you were not only did it, through yeah, the process. Not only did it validate it, it, uh, it felt like an empowerment to speak up about it in a way that I had to get this message out. I so appreciate you talking with me and having such an honest conversation about all of these things. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rachel. My parting invitation is... Please. Yeah, is to celebrate. I mean, I'm inviting you to celebrate what I'm celebrating, and that is this experience of the miracle of where we find ourselves. And you needn't have a terminal diagnosis to lean much more fully into that than you possibly could believe. And I promise you it's worth